0: everyone. Welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week and listening. I really, really appreciate it. Um, If you have not yet done it, make sure to go leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow, subscribe wherever you are listening. So um, thanks for tuning in. Today we are doing our Bible um, podcast. This was supposed to come out on Thursday. Again, I have been really, really bad about the Thursday episodes. Um, It has just been... Well, I don't want to make excuses, but like parts of the the Bible reading this time, um, they're really, really interesting. But I think I got intimidated by how long they were. <laughs> like Daniel has some really, really long um, chapters. And so I don't know. I was just slowly, slowly getting through it this week. Um, but actually, as I started reading Daniel, I really enjoyed it. Like, I really like the story ones that are kind of easy to understand less like um, prophecies which the prophecies are really interesting but they're just a lot harder for me to understand and like provide a really good summary because they just get confusing I'm not sure which time period they're talking about the the prophecy in so anyway I started with Daniel we're going to go all the way through to the end of Joel and so let's see it's Daniel um, Hosea And then I think it's just Joel. Yeah, and then Joel. So then next week, we'll do Amos through the end of the Old Testament. So it's like a bunch of books that are really short coming up. So next episode, we're getting through like, I don't know, it's like seven books, I think. And then we're in Matthew, which is the New Testament. Seems extremely late in the year to just be getting into the Old Testament. We have like a month left of the year, but that is because... I'm about four weeks or three or four weeks behind in my Bible podcast. So, um, yes, we're going to be kind of racing through the New Testament. Um, it might bleed over a little bit into the end of the or into next year, you know, into January, but um, we'll see. Hopefully I can get them all knocked out. And I really love the New Testament. I think a lot of, you know, modern day Christians love the new testament because jesus has arrived and then paul's writings are amazing so those seem to be easier for me to read and like make a summary and talk about and stuff so um i hopefully will just race through those so anyway let's get started we're going from daniel 1 to joel 3. So the book of Daniel, let's get right into it. So Daniel 1, Um, side note, my brother's name is Daniel. He was named after this Daniel. So this is a really good book for me to read because really when I think of Daniel, I just think of Daniel and the Lion's Den. I also think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as a separate story. I forgot that they were in the same time period and same book as Daniel and the Lion's Den was. So it was really good to review and see what all was actually in Daniel because the Daniel in the lion's den part of his book is only like half of one chapter, pretty much. So let's start with Daniel 1 and get it going here. So, okay, so we know that King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And at this time when the book is written, um, he has besieged Jerusalem or when the book is taking place, um, he has besieged Jerusalem the king ordered the chief of his court officials to kind of go out and look for all the young men who could join the king's service so they had to be like really smart really handsome no physical deformities strong like a good warrior basically with also them being sharp and smart because they wanted to teach them the language and the literature of the babylonians and um they would collect all these men train them for three years and then the best of the men essentially would be chosen for the king's service and basically find favor with the king and have a job in his service so daniel was trained he trained for three years he was asked like during his training he was given the name Belshazzar. i think is how you pronounce it um is that his name i thought that was the other king's name Oh, yeah. Okay. So another king's name that we'll talk about later has a very similar name to this, but it's not the exact one. So Daniel was given the name Belshazzar. Okay. So during their training, they would bring all these men and give them like royal food and wine. And Daniel, however, asked for him to not have to defile himself with the royal food and wine and like the feast and everything like that. And their handler or trainer sort of guy said well i'm afraid that if you guys if like my group of men look worse because you're not eating all this food um if you're not performing your strength and you don't look as strong and don't look as good then that guy would be punished so daniel asked him to test him and his friends him all of the people who didn't want to defile themselves Uh, with the royal food and wine he said okay test us for 10 days then just give us vegetables and water for 10 days and then you can test us so at the end of the test it said they looked better more they had more strength they were you know they were way better looking and performing than the people who had been trained that had been eating the royal food and wine so um it turns out that Daniel and his friends were chosen so they were like It was a group of four. So it was Daniel and then four other people. And they were chosen. They were the winners, essentially, at the end of the training for the king's service. So that's where Daniel 1 ends. In Daniel 2, the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, started to have dreams. So he wasn't sure what the dreams meant because they were very specific. And so he called in all the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and all that to try to interpret his dream. So usually what would happen is the king would tell what the dream was. And then the magicians or enchanters would interpret it. However, the king, instead of just saying, I'm going to tell you what it is, tell me what this means, said, no, you're going to tell me what I dreamed. And then also the interpretation of the dream. And they said, well, no man on earth could do that. I I can't tell you, like, I don't know what you dreamt. So... Nebuchadnezzar then made a decree to kill all of the wise men including Daniel and his friends so because Nebuchadnezzar was so upset that no one could could tell him what his dream was and then what the interpretation was he said okay whatever all these wise men are fools basically so put them all to death Daniel heard of this and went to the king to um interpret his dream the thing was is that you know he, of course, said, no man can inter- can do what you're asking. No man can know what you dreamt and tell you. However, my God is a revealer of mysteries. And so he has revealed the dream to me. So God revealed the dream to Daniel in a vision. And then it goes through Daniel praising God. So he goes back, relays this to the king, says, again, like, no man can do what you're asking. But I have a God that reveals mysteries. And The dream was he saw a statue of gold, bronze, silver, wait, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. So different parts of the body were these different metals or uh, materials. And the feet was like a mix of iron and clay, I believe it was. So the statue then in the vision was destroyed, but not by human hands. And then the interpretation of the dream was that each metal stands for a successive inferior kingdom that was going to come to power. It said the toes were partly clay and partly iron um, because there was going to be a kingdom that comes up that is partly strong and partly brittle. But at the end, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That is the meaning of this dream. So um, after Daniel was able to interpret this, he was set at a high position and the king lavished him with gifts. Okay, I had to cut the (laughs) recording a little bit and have a little sneeze attack, Um, but we're back. So Daniel three, the King Nebuchadnezzar, made a big image of gold and invited all the um, officials to come to the dedication and ordered everyone to worship the gold statue. So at this point, Nebuchadnezzar likes Daniel a lot and promoted him because you know, he interpreted the dream and he knows that Daniel serves a different God than him, but he, um, Nebuchadnezzar is not, I guess, quote unquote, a Christian. He doesn't worship uh, Daniel's God right now. So um, he, that's why he's like putting up this idol to have everyone worship. And They say okay everyone worship the gold statue and the jews of the group which is shadrach meshach and abednego were not going to do it i also heard that his name is pronounced abednego or something i always thought it was Abednego, and so now i'm trying to say abednego so i don't really know how to pronounce his name but um it's these three guys these three jewish men will not bow down to the statue um they will not worship idols So they get tried basically in front of Nebuchadnezzar and he says, you know, what if I throw you into a blazing furnace because you won't bow down to my idol? And they said, we don't need to defend ourselves. Our God will rescue us. And even if he doesn't, that's the most important part. They said he will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship the idol. They are, they are sticking with obeying God's word over anything, even if they get killed in this fire so the fire was set to seven times hotter this furnace was set to seven times hotter than usual and some of their soldiers or men nebuchadnezzar's men took the three jewish men and threw them into the fire now the fire was so hot that even the men that took them up to the furnace were killed because it was so hot so those people died then they're all watching in the furnace they said didn't we throw three men in the fire um, I see four men and so God or an angel was inside the furnace with them giving them protection and the three men walked out of the furnace completely unharmed not a hair was singed not any like none of their robes were damaged nothing they were completely protected within the fire so the king Nebuchadnezzar was so amazed that he issued a decree that you could not say anything bad against the god of these men and they were promoted within the ranks of the king so in daniel 4 the king had another vision there was an enormous tree standing in the middle of the land um, a messenger from heaven said to cut down the tree and trim all the branches but to let the roots and stump remain in the ground but it had to be bound with iron and bronze so like all these visions are very visual, I guess that's a point, but I liked how they described all of this. It was really interesting. Um, it said that they was drenched with dew of heaven and like the mind of the tree changed from that of a man to that of an animal. So the King asked Daniel to interpret the dream and Daniel was alarmed by the interpretation. He said like, if only this was about your enemies, this is pretty (laughs) terrible. So the tree is symbolic of the king. He is big, he's powerful, he has these big branches, like he has all the power of the land. But he was going to be driven away from the people and live with wild animals. It says seven times will pass until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms, which I think means seven years um, in this context. So basically God's going to humble him until he realizes that God is the God. So Daniel tells him to renounce his sin but he doesn't yet and all of it comes true so he got driven out by by people out of the kingdom he had to live among the animals he basically lost his mind and then all this like he finally gained sanity and he admitted that um, his faith was in god in the god of daniel so in daniel 5 the new king who is Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar Belshazzar something Um, he's throwing a big great banquet he gave orders to bring in the goblets that his father had taken from the temple and they were all drinking from these goblets and they started praising the gods of metals so the the goblets were made of like gold silver and bronze I think or I know gold and silver for sure I didn't make a note of that I should have but the goblets were made of different metals and they started praising the gods of each respective metal. Then, all of a sudden, at this banquet, fingers of a human hand just appeared and started writing on the plaster of a wall. And this is, I think, I'm assuming, where the the saying, like, oh, you're got you're What am I trying to say? You're going to read the writing on the wall. This is, I think, where that comes from because there were human hands writing on a wall and no one could read it except for one person. And that person was um, Daniel. So no one could read the writing on the wall. It said, okay, um, so Daniel was called in because the king's mom, who was Nebuchadnezzar's wife, Um, told his son, hey, when your dad was ruling, there was this great man, Daniel, who knew, like, had the spirit of the Lord and he could tell you things like this and you should call him in. So Daniel got called in to this banquet. He was promised all these gifts and Daniel said, I don't want the gifts. I'll just read it anyway, though. So Daniel started saying to this new king, your father had lots of power and everyone feared him, but his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. So he was stripped of all of his glory. But you saw all this and knew all this and did not humble yourself. So then he started reading the inscription. It was, and I don't know how to pronounce this, mean, mean, parson. I know 100% that I'm not pronouncing that correctly. But the first two words, same word, means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Then the tekel word means you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting and per. Perez, which is the plural of parson, means your kingdom is divided and given to Medes and per- and the Persians. So basically like your king- kingdom um, is divided. Okay, so Daniel interprets all of this and he becomes and is promoted to the third highest ruler in all the land. And right after that, Belshazzar, which is the king, the current king, was slain and Darius the Mede took over at age 62. So in Daniel 6, Darius appointed 120 set traps. I don't know really what that is, but from context clues, I figured out that it's essentially an auditor. It's supposed to make sure that a king didn't suffer loss. So I think it's like a financial like overseer kind of. And so they put 120 of these throughout the entire kingdom. And Daniel was one of them. So he was trusted with this role. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom um, because he was like so favored and good and all of that. So he was really highly favored in this position. And all the other people in this position tried to find grounds for charges against them because they were jealous, basically. But they couldn't find anything. He was so honest about how he dealt with the government affairs and all of the the money and things that he was not corrupt at all. They could not find a single thing to convict him on. So they thought to themselves, or they kind of connived together and said, well, he's not going to have anything that's worth convicting him of, you know, having to do with this role. It's going to have to be something with his God. And they knew Daniel prayed three times a day to his God. So um they convinced the king to issue an edict in the whole land that said that anyone prays to any anyone who prays to any god except for the king for the next 30 days will be put into the lion's den so this edict goes out daniel knows about it but the king didn't realize because the king still really highly favors daniel but he didn't put the pieces together that daniel would be someone who would not pray to him and so he would be put to death like the king loved daniel But he got tricked basically into putting this, not tricked, but convinced to put out this edict. And he didn't put the pieces together that this would put Daniel in danger. So Daniel heard it, but he carried on as he did before. He went and prayed three times a day, every day. So these people that were conniving against him went and told the king that Daniel was not following the edict and said, you cannot change this because it is an official ruling by the king. You're not allowed to change the ruling. So the king was distressed when he realized that Daniel was the one that was going to have to be put in the lion's den. He Because, he again, he hadn't really fully realized the repercussions of what this meant. So he had to be put in the lion's den. He, the king did everything to save him, but eventually Daniel did have to get put in the lion's den. And the king said, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. So he knew that Daniel still had faith in his God and that you know, and the king, even though he didn't really believe in the true God, was hoping that it was true. Like that was hoping that this God would protect him. So Daniel answered that God had sent angels to close the mouths of the lion. Oh, sorry. I missed a large part of the story. So they, they roll the stone in, you know, over the opening of the lion's den. And then the king spent a very restless night, um, like worrying, essentially, that Daniel was going to be dead in the morning. And when he, the morning hit, the king ran to the the lion's den and said, Daniel, are you alive? Did your God save you? And Daniel answered him that God had sent angels to close the mouths of the lion and he was safe. They had not touched him or harmed him in any way. So, At that point, the men who had accused Daniel, or who had basically trapped him, were brought in with their wives and children, and they were put in the lion's den, and they were immediately devoured. So it was truly a miraculous thing that David, I mean, that Daniel was spared. Um, So then the king decreed that everyone must fear and revere the god of Daniel. And yeah, that's a great story. That's the classic Daniel in the lion's den story. So in Daniel 7, Daniel had a dream. There were four winds of heaven churning up a great sea, and four beasts came out of the sea. So first, there was a lion with the wings of an eagle. The wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground, so it stood on two feet like a human, and it had the mind of a human. There was a second one that looked like a bear, and it says that it was raised up on one of its sides, which I don't really know (laughs) what that means, but it had three ribs in its mouth, and it said... You know someone said to it get up and eat your fill of flesh uh the third was a leopard with four wings like a bird four heads and the authority to rule and then the fourth it said was different from all the others it had large iron teeth it devoured victims it had 10 horns and daniel said while i was thinking about the horns another little horn came up three of the horns were uprooted before it the horn had uh eyes and a mouth and said boastful words a lot of boastful words from this one horn so the beast was slain and then thrown into the fire the other beasts were stripped of authority but were allowed to live for a little bit longer so they weren't completely destroyed like the fourth one was and then daniel actually had someone else interpret the dream because he was really really scared about what this dream meant i guess he was uh he was yeah he was terrified he was scared so the interpretation is that four kings will rise up from the earth most High will, oh, four kings will rise from the earth, but the Most High will possess it forever. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear, devour the whole earth, and the horns are representative of ten kings that will come from that kingdom. Um, three will be subdued, which is the three uprooted horns, and um they will slander the Most High and oppress his people. But then... The holy people will be delivered into his hands for three and a half years. So there's more like, I guess, oppression for the chosen people to come is what he's saying. Um, And the way they say three and a half years is they say like time, two times and a half a time, which is one year, two years and a half a year which I guess is three and a half years. I don't know why they um, split it up like that, but that's part of how it's described in the vision. So then in Daniel 8, he had a vision of a ram and a goat. The ram had two long horns. It was charging towards the west, north, south, and no animal could stand against it. There was a goat with one horn then that crossed earth without touching the ground, and it attacked the ram and shattered the horns. It said they became great, but the horn was eventually broken off and four new horns grew. One of them grew a smaller horn and it grew in power to the southeast and grew high all the way up to to the sky. Um, Let's see. Sanctuary was thrown down um, and the truth was thrown to the ground. So this is like a very detailed animal vision that is going to be interpreted to mean like things about the kingdoms and prophecy for what's to come and so the interpretation of that is that the two-horned ram is well let me just read it it's gonna be easier it says the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of media and persia the shaggy goat is the king of greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have, co- have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, not by human power." So that is the interpretation of kingdoms to come. Okay, Daniel 9 uh, talks about the desolation of Jerusalem that will last 70 years. Um, Daniel prayed and said, we have sinned and done wrong. He starts repenting for the sins of himself and his people. He said, you have fulfilled your words and judgments and they have been poured out on us already. Turn away from your anger and um, from us and Jerusalem. So then there was this prophecy about 77s that are decreed for your people to finish transgression. So again, I'm just going to read this chunk um, because that's just going to be a lot easier. So it says, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. Uh, Wait. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary the end will come like a flood war will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him now i'm going to be doing a full podcast about the end times and what i think you know the end times consist of because there's like three camps there's like the you know the time of tribulation some people think that the chosen people will be taken before the time of tribulation some believe halfway some believe at the end i am not that great at interpreting like what is going to happen during the end times prophecies like this honestly kind of lose me at this point not gonna lie um But I will be doing a full podcast about these, like, prophecies, and I think this whole end time stuff, like, all of this stuff in Daniel really plays into that because um, Daniel 10 and 11 are, well, more Daniel 11, which we'll get to after this, is, like, this huge detailed prophecy about wars and the end times and it's very very detailed so I'm not going to go into all the detail now I'm going to just set aside a podcast episode to do you know a full like end times prophecy things because there's also prophecies in Isaiah that I want to go back and really dissect to make sure that I understand what they're talking about so right now I'm just going to be giving the very overview summary and then we'll go back into some of these prophecies. So I have this on my list that I will go back for. Um, okay, so Daniel 10, a message comes to Daniel about a great war. Daniel mourns for three weeks. There's a man standing in front of him dressed in linen. So he's he's seeing this vision of this man with like, um, it's not a human like man, I guess it is a man, but his skin is like topaz, I think it said. And he's just, he could tell that it's not an actual human being. So Daniel fell into a great sweep, sleep and then woke up trembling he stood up and said um and the man said do you know why i've come to you soon i will return to fight against the prince of persia and when i go the prince of greece will come but first i will tell you what is written in the book of truth um and so daniel in daniel 11 gets told this full very detailed prophecy about the war that's about to happen this great war so again that is the thing that i'm not going to go into a ton of detail but then in daniel 12 Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. Um, That's what this man says. Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered and some will go to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. So he's talking about the end days. It said that it will be very, very far in advance. But then it says from the time the sacrifice is abolished, it will be 1290 days. Blessed is the one who reaches 1335 days. This was extremely confusing to me. I was like, 1335 days is like roughly four years you know and if the daily sacrifice has already been abolished like is this a prophecy that didn't come true or is this referencing something else because the final like end of times did not happen only four years after Daniel got this but then um he did get a warning like that all of these things that he's talking about happened way 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 in advance at the end days. So again, we're going to go into the end days more in um, another podcast, but that is the book of Daniel. So half of it was like him, his biography of like things that happened to him and his friends and his position in the kingdom. And then half was like his uh, visions that he got or interpreting of dreams. Okay. So now we're into the book of Hosea, which um, was a good one. Hosea is a prophet. Uh, and basically part of his life is like symbolic of what's happening with Israel. So in Hosea one, God said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for like an adulterous wife. This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he marries a woman named Gomer and she had a son. The, um, again, like so that's symbolic of Israel being promiscuous and having this son. So the Lord told Hosea to name his son Jezreel because he will punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Then Gomer, his wife, conceives again and gives birth to a girl who God t- says to name Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. He said, I will no longer show love to Israel and... um will show love to Judah and will save Judah. So again it's more symbolic about Israel not being loved and this ties in later in the book as well. Okay, then Gomer had another son. He was supposed to be named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Um, But then there's this promise that the Israelites will be like sand on the seashore. Um, In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So he talks about how Israel has been like a promiscuous woman and not obeyed God at all, but he also promises in this same chapter that he will restore Israel. Okay, Hosea 2 says um, is all about Israel being punished and then restored again. It continues that theme. They compare Israel to an unfaithful and adulterous wife again. It said there will be total destruction. I will punish her for the days of idols. But then after that punishment it says but now i will allure her allure her allure her and speak tenderly give her back her vineyards she will respond as in the days of her youth so it's like yes israel will will return to their first love which is god it said i will show my love to the one i called not my loved one i will say to those called not my people you are my people so again the restoration Okay, Hosea 3, Hosea is called to go reconcile with his wife. So the Lord says, go show love to your wife again, though she is an adulteress. Um, So he went back and married her and they were supposed to live out the rest of their days together without sleeping with anyone outside of their marriage um, as the Israelites' new covenant, again, symbolic of the Israelites and God. So it says for the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods, will come to the Lord and his blessing in the last days. So Israel will return to God in the last days. Hosea 4 says, hear the word of the Lord, Israelites. The Lord has a charge to bring against those who live in the land. There is no love and no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder. says, you have rejected my knowledge. I will reject you now as my priest. Okay, then it says to not um, have like sorcery or... and, And then it talks about a divination rod. And this is very interesting because we had quite the debate. Well, I don't know if it was a debate as much as me just saying, just talking about a divination rod, but I just learned about what this is. I'm not sure if it's the exact same thing as what's referenced here in the Bible, but... I okay let me back up so I watched Coraline over um, when I was in Michigan last we all watched it and in the movie Coraline if you've ever seen it she goes oh I'm gonna do water witching or like I think she I don't know if she said divination rod or anything but she said something about water witching which is where you take a metal forked thing so like think of the shape of let's say a clothes hanger that's metal And there's this practice, which apparently is pretty common in the Midwest, where you hold it in your hands and then you walk around your property. And if the rod bends, that means there's water there. Or like if the rod kind of dips down towards the earth, that means there's water there. And when I heard about that, I was like, something's off. I got a little check in my (laughs) spirit that I didn't really... I was like, I don't like... That I think something's a little weird, so it's also called water witching. And I was looking it up, and now I have no, like, I'm under no preconception that every single person who is doing this thinks that they are connecting with this energy. But they said dedicated people who use divination rods to find water or learn something about the earth, whatever. They said those who are dedicated to this think that this sixth sense of the earth or something will tell them where water is and will reveal to them something about nature and it says to not do that it says basically that this is on par with um a medium that's kind of the the vibe i got Um, but let me pull up this article from Christian Answers because it, it really explained it well, um, because I am not explaining it well. Okay. So what does the Bible say about dowsing? It says dowsing also called water witching is a method of locating underground water or buried treasure by tapping into what dowsers call spiritual energy. Dowsing involves different methods, but often the dowser holds a forked rod with a straight end pointed toward the ground. It is believed that the rod moves up or down when the dowser walks directly over the place where water or other material is present. This practice has been around since ancient times and is considered a harmless practice by many. The Bible does not say anything specific about dowsing, but there are elements of dowsing that should cause concern. Okay, now this is where I think they described it pretty well. Because again, I don't think walking around with a forked stick is necessarily bad, but when you have this belief behind it it could be bad so it says while anyone can walk around with a forked stick dedicated dowsers believe that they are using a sixth sense to channel the earth's energy they believe the universe is speaking to them and revealed buried truths using a dowsing rod is similar to using a ouija board in this manner it is an attempt to gain information through positive or negative energy that is supposedly controlling an inanimate object well, some argue that the earth is water-rich enough that almost anyone can predict a water source if they drill deeply enough, others point out that the accuracy of dowsers may be significantly higher than that of random guesses. Which, this is a, it's better, but I did look at a study that said it was not any better, and that also said that pretty much if you're in an area where you're going to get water at that depth, then, you know... Even if you dug 40 feet off of your dowsing rod, you'll probably hit water there because the water is just so, like there's so much water in the ground anyway, you'll get it anywhere. So it says, the Bible addresses practices such as dowsing in Hosea Hosea 4.12, which is where I saw that. It says, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. The diviner's rod has been variously interpreted as a magic wand, an asherah pole, or some type of wooden staff that is used to predict the future or guide seekers into wisdom. The occult diviner's rod condemned in Hosea sounds similar to a dowsing rod. In fact, another name for a dowsing rod is a divining rod because the purpose of the dowsing is to divine the location of water or precious metals. According to Hosea, the Lord places divining rods, idolatry, and prostitution in the same category. But why would God be opposed to a harmless means of discovering a water source? It says, The bottom line is that dowsing is a form of divination, a practice strictly forbidden by God. Divination is, is an attempt to predict the future or uncover secret knowledge through a supernatural means other than the Lord. Sorcery, divination, witchcraft, and other occult practices have been a part of human history since the Old Testament days, This type of activity was one of the reasons God was so severe with his Canaanite nations and commanded his people to have nothing to do with it. So that is my (laughs) official stance on divining rods. I don't like them. And even if it's slightly different, like if the interpretation like what he was uh, saying, like the magic wand or an asherah pole or something like that like exactly what they were saying I don't like um trying to channel this spiritual energy to like uncover this thing and I don't think a lot of people are doing this with the intent of like oh I'm going to channel the universe and it's going to come through me and whatever I think a lot of it is probably just tradition at this point in like certain areas of the country but I still don't like it and I'm going to probably stay away from it I hadn't even heard of it since like this year so um I think that's more of a midwest thing I'm assuming, or someplace with w- more water. I'm in um, Colorado, and it's like semi-arid, so we don't really have that, as far as I know. <laughs> um, okay, so enough about that. That was like a very big sidebar of this whole thing, but I thought it was very interesting. So, okay, Hosea five uh, talks about the judgment against Israel, how this is discipline against their uh, wandering, um, a spirit of prostitution is their heart is in their heart, and they're arrogant. So all the same things that we struggle with today. I think the spirit of prostitution is like straying more than it is like physical prostitution, like straying from God. And then arrogance is something I think a lot of people deal with. Hosea 6, um, it talks about how Israel is unrepentant. They talk about how they will return to the Lord for a short amount of time. But then it says your love is like a morning mist, an early dew that disappears. It's just, they're not consistent. They just say, oh, please save us. And then they evaporate, their their belief evaporates, they go worship idols again. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 7 says, whenever I he- would heal Israel, the sins of Ephra- Ephraim are exposed. The sins that are mentioned here are deceit, robbery, adulterers. Um, Ephraim is easily deceived and senseless. They slash themselves to appeal to their gods. They have not chosen the one true God. They're trying all these other gods. And I think I remember, I remember back in early Old Testament Bible study or Bible episodes, we talked about how um, this slashing of themselves is a ritual to appease certain pagan gods to cut yourself. And so it talks about how Ephraim, which is a tribe of Israel... And a person, but then he kind of founded, I guess, the tribe. Um, They all still do this and they're all still worshiping other gods. Hosea 8 says, because they have rebelled, Israel cries out to me, God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good and an enemy will pursue them. It says they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. They're just sowing chaos and rebellion and all that, and they will reap bad things because of that. Ephraim has built altars for sin offerings, but they've abandoned that. And those altars have become for sinning. So they're just perverse. It's just a perverse people um, at the moment. Hosea 9 says, do not rejoice, Israel. You have been unfaithful. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. So it's warning them that they're um, ally, them being allies with Egypt and Assyria are bad. They're not supposed to be doing that. Um, they don't bring their food or their offerings to the temple for the Lord. They just keep it all for themselves. And the days of punishment are coming. Uh, Hosea 10 talks about how Israel used to prosper, but now their heart is deceitful. The Lord will destroy their altars. They take false oaths. There's a lot about how they've strayed. They lie. They cheat. They steal. Um, they and they're now they've planted that evil fruit and now they're or the seeds and now they're reaping evil. It says, Because you have depended on your own strength, your fortresses will be devastated. But Hosea 11 talks about and remembers God's love for Israel when Israel was young. He remembers his love for them and his compassion is aroused. And so he still talks about Israel's sin at the end of the chapter, but he is now. Remembering the compassion and the early love of Israel. So Hosea 12 reviews like Ephraim's um, alliances with Assyria and Egypt, which was a mistake, describes them as dishonest merchants. They always boast that they're very rich and think that the rich, like them being rich makes them um, completely immune to any judgment, makes them sinless and makes them clean when it's not that way at all. Um, and then they say that uh, Ephraim will uh, will return, but will have them live in tents again, like the early days, like wandering around the wilderness. And so while his compassion was aroused, also this bitter anger is aroused, and still there will be the guilt of bloodshed on this tribe. So then Hosea 13 talks about Ephraim the person, like the the human, um, said that he was exalted in Israel, but then worshipped Baal and died, and now they sin even more than he did. So there's just tons of idols. Um, they're stored up and kept on record. And it says, "I will deliver this people from the power of the grave, redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O death, is your destruction?" So this is similar to Paul in the New Testament, which we will read soon, saying, "Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting?" same sort of thing um and i think this is a reference paul's referencing this Hosea 14 talks about how repentance brings blessings which is still i think true now and he says i will heal their waywardness and love them freely they will be like due to israel and they'll he will blossom like a lily so again talking about how bad israel has been but also the restoration which is comforting So now we're in the book of Joel, Joel 1. It says, Joel calls the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem to lament and return to the Lord during a time of national disaster. This is in the intro. The national disaster is that a locust plague has just destroyed both wine and grain, which threatens the people's ability to present offerings in the temple. So the word of the Lord comes to Joel in Joel 1 and talks about the great great swarm of locusts. They weep and grieve about this, and there's a call to wail and lament. In Joel 2, it's kind of split up into two sections, which talks about the locusts and compares them to a big army, but then says, even now, return to me with all your heart and fasting and weeping and mourning, declare a holy feast. He's called together all the people together and pray to spare your people. So they do this, they all get together, pray. The Lord takes pity on his people. It says, I will drive the northern horde far from you. Be glad and rejoice. I will repay you for the years of food the locusts have eaten because they are now being faithful to the Lord. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on my people. Sons and daughters will prophesy, you know, old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. So I think it was that. I just wrote dream dreams and see visions, but I know that it's like old men will do this, young men will do this. So... Um, the spirit and the gifts of the spirit will be poured out on to the people because they have been faithful. In Joel 3, which is actually the last book of Joel, it's a very short book. It says God will judge the nations in the days when he restores Judah and Jerusalem. He will gather the nations and put them on trial for what they did to the people of Israel. So, this is like the punishment for the other nations that helped to destroy Israel. There will be war, there will be blessing for God's holy people, Jerusalem will be holy, and the mountains will drip new wine and flow with milk, and it'll all be very prosperous. So, that is what we're doing today. That was Daniel 1 through Joel 3. Very, very good section. Some of the prophecies were still confusing. Again, I will be going over those in another like End Times podcast at some point once I do more research about them but that is the summary of that book i love the book of daniel i realized i think it's a really great book the end gets a little confusing with those prophecies but the beginning i love hearing about daniel's life and how faithful he was even when the government made these like um edicts i guess they're called in here um it is inspiring because there is a lot of stuff in the news today that I feel like is um, challenging. You know, there's a lot of laws that are being passed that are like confusing and, and America is still fine, I think, but there have been countries and there are countries where worshiping or praying to God is not allowed. And, It takes a lot of courage to continue on in your faith. And I have not had any sort of test like that at all. Like in America, you are allowed to pray, you have freedom of religion, all of that stuff. So as much as it feels like there's things that are encroaching on freedom of religion or freedom of speech or whatever, um, it's still so much better than a lot of countries who literally cannot, you know, Christians are put to death. So I think this book really reminded me, or this section, I guess, really reminded me, like, how amazing it is to live here and how we need to be praying for Christians in other countries, because that would be, like, I don't know if I was in that situation. I'm hoping that I would do what Daniel did and be unbothered and go pray three times a day, but the amount of trust that he had that God would save him from the lion's den, and even if he didn't, he would still do it, like, that is really inspiring and really convicting to be like, okay, I need to make sure I'm like on the same page where if that were to ever happen, I would be willing to sacrifice my life for that, you know, because I think in American Christianity, it's really easy to just sit there and be like, yep, I'm a Christian, but there's nothing threatening your Christianity or threatening your life or, you know. So anyway, um, I really enjoyed this chunk of scripture. I hope you all did too. And I hope this was a valuable summary for you. Um, I will be on the pod tomorrow for um, a podcast about the Farmer's Almanac. And that might be um, a little bit uh, random, but I have always been interested about it. So tune in tomorrow for that episode. I will see you then. Talk to you later. Bye.